This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. We're going to have some fun in our second segment today, bringing back one of our favorites, uh, film documentarian Michael Bonner, who we spoke to, gosh, it's been a while. But uh, you've seen him probably if you watch the National Ge- Geographic Channel. His work with sharks has been on uh, on Shark Week, I know, on a couple of occasions. And, uh, well, you'll have to stay tuned to segment two to hear about uh, the new exhibit opening in Atlanta that our friend uh, Michael Bonna is... Uh, is constructing still. It'll be called Planet Shark, and we'll be talking about that in segment two. But let us begin the program as we like to do with On This Date in History, which in our case today is the 3rd of September. It was on September 30 in 590 that Gregory I became Pope. Among his many accomplishments, the Gregorian chant, which frankly you don't hear as much of these days as you used to. On this date in 1189, Richard the Lionhearted was crowned King of England at Westminster Abbey. Known for leading a crusade to Palestine, it is perhaps less well known that he spoke French. I mean, even when conducting royal business, that was the language that he spoke. He was also gay. And folks, isn't that why you listen to this program? (laughs) The tidbits like that that we serve up? Well, we hope so. On this date in 1658, Oliver Cromwell died, having ruled England for almost five years as Lord Protector, a post to which he was appointed in 1653. Cromwell had defeated the Royalist forces in the English Civil War and tried to appoint someone else as the the leader of the pack, but uh, decided that, well, no one else could do it any better than he could. He would just have to step up. The monarchy was restored about a year later, at which point Cromwell's body was disinterred from Westminster Abbey and hanged. That'll teach him. On this date in 1803, in his notebook, English chemist John Dalton, who proposed the atomic theory of matter, uses atomic symbols for the first time. And oh yes, by the way, it was on September 3rd, 1939, that World War II began. At least that was the date upon which Great Britain and France declared war on Nazi Germany following their invasion of Poland. If any date in history needed some comedy relief, it might be that one. So it's interesting to note that on that same day, the first and only Yugoslavian Grand Prix was held in Belgrade. Our quote of the day comes from Winston Churchill, who once said, India is a geographical term. It is no more United Nation than the equator. Our quip of the day comes from the original historian, Herodotus, who once said, Very few things happen at the right time, and the rest do not happen at all. The conscientious historian will correct these defects. Our joke of the day comes from a comic strip, Pickles, wherein a month or two ago, they illustrated a couple guys out playing croquet. One of them says, I've heard that at one time Donald Duck comics were banned from Finland because he didn't wear pants. <laughs> the guy goes, really? The guy goes, yep. You know, once I was refused service at a restaurant for the same reason. For the next several panels, the, <laughs> the fellow looks at the guy that just said that, puzzled. To which he adds, finally, only in my case, it was shoes. Causing the first guy to say, way to ruin a good story. 
Our stat of the day comes from the Marilyn Vos Savant column in Parade Magazine. Marilyn was asked the following provocative question. If all the money in the world were redistributed so that everyone had the same amount, what would that amount be? Said Marilyn, the global money supply is about $60 trillion. Economists call this figure the M3 value, which includes much more than currency. Say we take it all, which means that you and Bill Gates would have nothing in the bank and distributed equally among individuals in the world, which are about 6.8 billion people at this point. Do the math, and each man, woman, and child on Earth would have about $9,000. So if your household now has less than $9,000 per person, you would gain. If you had more, you would lose. All right, let's jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly. Our first item comes from The Week magazine, which pointed out that it was a good week last week for a vacation in Venice. After a hotel near that Italian city owned by International Hotels Group accidentally advertised a room rate of one cent per night. Said spokeswoman Monica Smith, IHG is committed to honoring the one cent rate for guests who have a valid confirmation. Apparently about 230 people had taken advantage of that offer. Apparently it was kind of a bad week a few weeks back for British economists. After two of them sent an extraordinary letter to Queen Elizabeth II in which they tried to explain why they and their distinguished colleagues failed to foretell the financial crisis. Said the economist, everyone was to blame, meaning no one was to blame. A better explanation is that economists ignored messy realities that don't lend themselves to expression in mathematical models or are intractable to formal analysis. We have more to say on that topic a little bit later in the show. And finally, it was an ugly week last week for Dutch geologists. When the Dutch National Museum had to admit that one of its prized possessions, a rock supposedly brought back from the moon by U.S. astronauts, was in fact a piece of petrified wood. According to the story, the museum acquired the rock after the death of former Prime Minister Wilhelm Dries in 1988. Dries received it as a private gift from the then U.S. ambassador during a visit by the three Apollo 11 astronauts. Said a spokesman, apparently no one thought to doubt it since it came from the Prime Minister's collection. Here's the part I like best. Researchers from Amsterdam's Free University said they could see at a glance the rock was probably not from the moon. And actually, we have a bonus, good, bad, and the ugly item, sent to us by our New York correspondent in conjunction with the appearance of former Homeland Security Chief Tom Ridge on the WNYC Leonard Lopate program. Apparently, Secretary Ridge revealed in his new book that George Bush thought we should go with the color yellow for those alerts that we used to have, because if we launched the system at orange, people might become used to the threat and not take it seriously. Ridge also said they considered white as the top threat level until Andy Card pointed out to someone that white is, in fact, the color of surrender. All right, item from the Only in America file. Apparently, a North Carolina woman is suing the city of Raleigh because no men will play tennis with her. Nancy Griffith, age 41, said she was so routinely beating the male opponents in the city-sponsored tennis league 
that the city scrapped a rule that penalized players for declining matches. Griffin, for her part, wants $10,000 for her emotional distress caused by hearing her opponents make excuses. Is this a great country or what? Griffin was quoted as saying, apparently with, you know, great emotional distress in her voice, one said he had a jealous wife and he couldn't play females. Is it lame? Yes. Is it legally actionable? Well, in America, maybe. We're going to be talking as the show wears on about how the public is influenced by things. And boy, we must have an English theme on today's show. According to Mental Floss magazine, a couple of researchers at Oxford University, or at least one at Oxford and one at Italy's University of Trento, uh, studied how much we're affected by how foods look, taste, and smell, at least in terms of how much we then enjoy them. And perhaps not surprisingly, the way they sound actually changes our dining experience. Charles Spence and Massimiliano Zampini studied people eating Pringles in their laboratory and electronically manipulated the noises their subjects heard as they chewed. The scientists note that certain sounds simply taste better. Adding that if we change the sound as they eat, we can actually change how fresh or crisp the Pringles taste to people. And if you're keeping score, it turns out that a high-frequency crunch from 2 kilohertz to 20 kilohertz was judged as the most crisp, fresh, and delicious sound a potato chip can make. All right, let's talk a little bit about health. We mentioned on last week's program the AstroTurf groups that are being hired to show up at these um, so-called town hall meetings. Sacramento's congressman, by the way, Doris Matsui, has said that she's going to have a telephone town hall meeting. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But I guess at least in the Sacramento town hall meeting, armed men won't show up exercising their right to bear arms. But I uh, thought I would quote from uh, Carol Lockhead from the San Francisco Chronicles Washington Bureau, who noted that obesity's heavy toll on medical expenses needs to be taken a look at. Said Lockhead, obesity is the elephant in the room of healthcare reform, a public health catastrophe that kills more than 100,000 Americans a year, costs the nation $147 billion last year alone, and threatens to shorten U.S. life expectancy for the first time since the Civil War. She goes on, whatever Washington does this year to reduce medical spending seems likely to be swamped by the nation's rising weight. Obesity lurks behind the top chronic illnesses, heart disease, diabetes, stroke, colon, breast, and prostate cancers, among many others, whose treatments routinely cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. At present, one out of every three Americans and one out of every four Californians is obese, and rates are rising at an alarming rate, particularly among children. Article goes on, while health care legislation in Congress would increase spending on prevention of chronic diseases, it does little to tackle the underlying obesity epidemic directly. Most of the bills are silent on what many health experts contend would be one of the worst, one of the most effective weapons, a tax on sodas. And uh, from the Chronicle on that same date, which was August 16th, article by the same author noting that industry fights proposals to levy tax on sugary sodas. Apparently, last month, the Washington media market was saturated by an advertising campaign featuring a slim adult couple on a budget holiday sipping small cans of soda and objecting to taxes on simple pleasures. The funders? Well, the beverage industry, (laughs) which apparently is behind an astroturf group titled Americans Against Food Taxes. This is aimed at uh, 
It's halting in its tracks what researchers believe one of the best weapons in the fight against obesity, a soda tax. The author notes that sugary soft drinks of scant nutritional value account for 43% of the increase in America's daily caloric intake since the late 1970s. Meanwhile, as we've documented on this program, and you've no doubt noticed, dear listener, soda servings have ballooned from 8-ounce bottles to 30-ounce refills. And the average American downs a gallon, a gallon of soft drink a week. Article quoted Yale Yale University researcher Kelly Brownell, noting that a one-cent-an-ounce tax on sugary drinks is the single most effective approach we have. And it makes sense to this correspondent that uh, if the government were to set policy on that, the market would itself then regulate this to no small degree. But like using the market to regulate carbon emissions by a simple carbon tax, there's a lot of enemies of that idea out there, which are generally the people that are profiting from the status quo. And we might again uh, visit uh, the research we, I think, reported on last May that studies done right here at the University of California, Davis, notes that uh, drinks sweetened with high fructose corn syrup raise cholesterol levels and triglycerides while they make people fat, showing indeed all sugars are not the same. This 12-week study involving different uh, types of sugars in drinks noted that, uh, that uh, people who drank fructose Sweetened soft drinks gained more visceral fat, which is a bad kind. They also developed more resistance to insulin, an early sign of diabetes. We have not uh, sought uh, Dr. Peter Havel at UCD to talk to us about this study, but uh, perhaps we should. The quibbling has already begun on whether this test, uh, which, was, which used apparently pure fructose, not high fructose corn syrup or sucrose, well, is it really transferable? You know, high fructose corn syrup is what goes into most of the uh, sweet and soft drinks out there, whereas pure fructose, in theory, is a little different. The high fructose sh- sugar does contain some glucose as well as fructose. In fact, apparently a PepsiCo spokesman, and PepsiCo apparently sponsored this research, said, This is very interesting and important study, but it does not reflect the real-world situation, nor is it applicable to PepsiCo since pure fructose is not an ingredient in any of our food and beverage products. Let's take a moment to talk about uh, about, uh, facts and how they're presented. I was taking a look recently at a book by George Lakoff titled The Political Mind, subtitled Why You Can't Understand 21st Century American Politics with an 18th Century Brain. This book, unfortunately, is a bit overblown and not particularly well written. So we don't plan to bring the author on anytime soon, but it does contain some very curious observations and does have some important lessons for all of us. The basic thrust of the book is that conservatives basically through the advertising media and understanding how that is successful, have basically kicked the butts of progressives for quite some time in this country because, well, they're just better attuned to how our brains work. In Lakoff's view, progressives have, have accepted an old view of reason, which dates back to the Enlightenment, which is that reason is conscious, literal, logical, universal, unemotional, disembodied, and serves self-interest. But as Lakoff points out, The cognitive and brain sciences have shown this to be a false view of reason. And he goes on to say, which I think is the main thrust of his book, that while this may sound like an academic issue, this assumption about the nature of reason has stood in the way of an effective progressive defense and advancement of democracy. The progressives, he says, have ceded the political mind to radical conservatives. 
And I must say, I pondered this matter of late because in this program, we like to, I guess, do the old progressive method of putting ideas out there and expect people to reason. Whereas the people at Clear Channel and Fox News, etc., well, let's just say they use a different approach. We've used this quote before, but it's worth mentioning again that back in 1952, apparently an admirer, after hearing uh, Adlai Stevenson give an impassioned speech, went up to him afterward and admiringly said to him, Governor Stevenson, I want you to know you're going to get the vote of every thinking person in America. Stevenson looked at her, smiled, and said, That's not enough. I need a majority. But if those who are not radical conservatives are to to move ahead in life, it is time we do give this whole question a rethink. New Scientist magazine certainly did uh, a week ago when they launched an editorial noting that positive thinking is needed for a cooler world, adding that psychology has a vital role to play in the effort to cut greenhouse gas emissions. Said the magazine, the threat posed by climate change is all too real. But some of the solutions are in the mind. That's the message from work in the field known as conservation psychology, which is beginning to show how people can be encouraged to change their lifestyles to cut greenhouse gas emissions. Environmental groups are learning the lesson that's pretty obvious. No one likes to be hectored, and preachiness is not a winning tactic. Positive campaigns like We Can Solve the Climate Crisis, run by Al Gore's Alliance for Climate Protection, are a better idea. Magazine notes, meanwhile, other research suggests that human nature need not be as rapacious and short-sighted as it sometimes appears. We are surprisingly ready to act in the interest of others and the natural world. Well, we we hope the magazine is right, and we certainly hope that better techniques are being used to get the message out there, because I'm dismayed to note that good friends of mine, bright people all, have asked me in recent months, do you think there's something to this whole global warming thing? Which makes me sad. And it seems apparent that, well, a new approach is needed, one that is more, I guess you'd say, psychologically advantageous to getting people to have that light bulb go off over their head. Because, as we mentioned in the last couple of weeks, uh, you know, certain powers that be have managed to get buzzwords out there that are very counterproductive. We're referring, of course, to the death panels. Writing on BaltimoreSun.com, Paul West noted, the notion that healthcare legislation would encourage life-shortening measures for the elderly or infirm, even government-assisted suicide, moved from Twitter feeds to accepted fact. It was repeated on websites and echoed by current and former elected officials. As a result, opponents of Obama's health reform measures have succeeded in fashioning a wedge issue out of an idea that's been part of federal law since the 1991 Patient Self-Determination Act, and supported in the past by both major parties. Article noted that the the campaign to do this launched shortly after House Democrats released their sweeping health overhaul measure on July 14th. Two days later, in a talk radio appearance, Betsy McAfee of the conservative Hudson Institute, another right-wing think tank, attacked the measure's advanced care planning provision. McAfee was a former Republican lieutenant governor of New York, also helped derail Bill and Hillary Clinton's health care overhaul back in 1994. She described this House proposal as a vicious assault on elderly people. Said Betsy, the, the Congress would make it mandatory, absolutely require, that every five years people in Medicaid have a required counseling session that will tell them how to end their life sooner. 
This was said to former Republican presidential candidate and alleged actor Fred Thompson on a show he started last spring on 125 radio stations. Noted Paul West, there is in fact no such requirement. Which reminds me, back when I was in college and the National Lampoon magazine featured a phony advice column supposedly written by Chicago Mayor Richard Daley, wherein Daley gave advice to a prospective political candidate saying, what you need to do, do is go out and phony up some pictures of your opponent peeing on altars and circulate phony petition papers by him saying that he wants to kill off old people because they just clutter the place up. Well, I got a good laugh out of that one back in the 1970s, but here we are in the 21st century, and (laughs) apparently uh, the Republicans are taking a page out of the playbook of the writers of the National Lampoon comedy magazine. The sad part is, they're making headway with it. Here's our pal, Will Durst. Well, thanks, Doug. And today I want to applaud the president for taking time out of his mother's vineyard vacation for a valiant effort to throw a happy face on the economy. He might want to come up with something a bit more encouraging than we're losing jobs at a much slower pace. Hey, everybody hear that? The economy's doing less badly. All right. It's not getting worse as fast as we previously thought. Woohoo! I think. About as jolly as a squad of 70-year-old cheerleaders in the rain at night. Of course, economists aren't even sure why the brakes are being applied to the recession. Could be sales of barbecue grilled tongs peaked, or maybe the economic stimulus package finally kicked in. Hard to tell. Although a lot of folks maintain the only thing the stimulus package aroused was their suspicion. Cash for clunkers might have helped. The rebate program ended its run with about 700,000 new cars sold, and three or four of them were made in America. All right, wait, stop. i got to jump in right there. You know, did you realize on this cash... For clunkers, that people went out, in many cases, and bought Hummers. Yes, it turns out this was more a bit of corporate welfare than it was an actual measure aimed at improving the environmental status of uh, American automobiles. In fact, according to the Wall Street Journal, the popular cash for clunkers rebate program has led to shortages in car showrooms across the country. Ford is now cranking up production to turn out 495,000 vehicles this quarter, an 18% rise from last year. One gets the sort of idea that uh, some people are missing the point on some of this. In fact, as usual, we're going to have to go to the UK for proper reporting on this. According to The Guardian, SUVs and pickup trucks made up 83% of the 300,000 cars that were first traded in under the scheme. Asked the newspaper, are Americans really over their love of big gas-guzzling automobiles? Well, not entirely. Six of the top ten trade-ins were SUVs, with two minivans and two pickup trucks rounding off the list. This reject list did not include any sedan model cars. Noted the paper, the scheme, which was designed primarily to boost auto sales rather than green America's roads, does not require purchasers to make a radical improvement in fuel efficiency in their new car. Once again, it looked kind of green, but it turns out to be corporate welfare. Anyway, sorry to step on Durst, but we're up against it on time. This is Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Stay tuned for more rants. (laughs) 